0: Greetings and welcome back to The Kicker, the podcast series from Columbus Business First. I'm Editor-in-Chief Dominic Kappa. It was a little brisk when we woke up this morning in central Ohio. Had that feeling of back-to-school time. And sure enough, it is welcome week at Ohio State University when classes get going for the fall semester. So appropriately, reporter Tom Knox and I chatted recently with Dr. Michael Drake, president of Ohio State since 2014, and we talked about a lot of stuff, from his thoughts on the concept of free tuition at state universities, an idea that was launched out of the presidential primaries this summer, to why the university is so intent on remaking its front along North High Street in the city, and why those days of dive bars and sketchy places to eat won't be found along that strip any longer. And did you know that Michael Drake has had a lifelong affair with music? You'll never guess who he can get to visit his class on the music of the civil rights movement. Yeah, well, here's a hint. Think Motown. Here's our talk with Michael Drake. We are here with Dr. Michael Drake, who is the president of Ohio State University, the 15th president of Ohio State University, appointed last year, came here from University of California, Irvine, not at Irvine, but Irvine. Yeah. Um, he As a little uh, bio information, uh, a physician by trade, uh, born in New York City. Yes. 66 years old. Didn't have to. Your birthday wasn't too long ago.
1: Right. I'm 43, but I no. I <laughs> 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 43 tough years.
0: Uh, married. <laughs> father of two sons. Yes. And uh, and, and you've got to you've got to tell us a little bit about this. If you think that uh, university president is a uh, is a grinding job, you do have fun. and You like music. Yes. And you do teach music. And if you would relay for us just that anecdote about the class that you teach at Ohio State and also uh, when it's show and tell time, who you're able to bring in uh, to sort of deliver the, 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 the instructional materials.
1: Great. First, great to be here and to chat with you again. Nice to see you, Dominic. Thank you. And, and looking forward to it. And you said the point last year, actually it's been two years and a bit, so we're starting our third, uh, this will be our third class that's coming next uh, next week. So. So I'm a junior, so that feels good. Uh, And you mentioned the music class, which is fun. So I'm a medical doctor by training and uh, practiced medicine on academic faculty for uh, 25 years. So I uh, was in the operating room a couple of days a week for 25 years and saw patients five or six days a week for that time. So that was great. Uh, When I, I moved more into higher education, I was always at a medical school, so I was always doing education, always a professor. But I moved more and more to doing the administrative leadership part of that, and less to doing the practice and research and teaching part over the years. When I finally, when I moved to Irvine, now um, which this this is uh, so eleven years ago, I started at Irvine, 2005. I wanted to teach, but I didn't have time really to teach at the College of Medicine anymore, so I started doing a freshman seminar, and my first freshman seminar was on medicine. The uh, first year I didn't teach, I was just getting my feet on the ground. Second year I taught a, a course on the history of medicine and medical ethics through the ages, and the theme was sort of things that might have been done in the year 1800 would be malpractice in 1900 and a crime in the, the, the present day. and So how, how did things change over time, and what are our ethics, et cetera. Right. I went from that, then I did, that was fun, and then the next year I changed the course um, slightly and I taught a course purely on musicology, and the musicology course that second year was on the music of the civil rights era and how music had changed, popular music had changed between 1954 and 1968 as the country was going through historical changes in civil rights. Right. And that was fun, and then the year after that I started teaching the course with our, the dean of our law school, And we made it music, civil rights, and the Supreme Court. So we looked at the Supreme Court, its decisions, and how they changed between 1954 and 1968, music and how it changed, things that were happening with people in the streets and how they changed and kind of wove it uh, all together. And we did it as a critical thinking course. So we would present a question like, in 1958, Eisenhower sent troops to Little Rock to um, aid desegregation of the high school was it the right thing to do? Was it too soon? Was it too late? What would you have done? And so we asked these eighteen or nineteen year olds questions that don 't have right or wrong answers, but just give them a chance to see the the important and challenging questions that we 're facing leaders who were doing these things in real time and how it 's really squishy and then there are different outcomes that are available and were available and that uh, you have to process information and make decisions uh, in real time if you're going to be a, a leader. And so we, have, we enjoy that very much. This last year, I taught the course here with our dean. My co-teacher was the dean of our law school, Alan Michaels, and uh, we had a great time. But we use the music to we, – we, we, so we talk about the Supreme Court and politics. And say, how does music
0: fill in on this? Um,
1: <clears throat> and so we use the music as a reflection of how the people were feeling viscerally. You know, art is, a, uh, is distilled from the personal and social and political circumstances of the artist. It's, a painting is painted for some reason or a poem is written for some reason relating to something that's going on or meant to convey a feeling in all of us. And music is no different. We use popular music because it changes relatively rapidly. And we thought if we l- looked at this difference over time and we actually we use music of the era and not music of the movement per se. So it really was what was Ed Sullivan showing on Sunday night in the living room across America for the young people to watch. And in 1954, it was the McGuire Sisters and in 1960 from Ohio. And in 1968, it was Sly and the Family Stone. And we sort of were saying, gosh, how did people's taste go? How did Ed Sullivan's taste go from the McGuire Sisters to Sly and the Family Stone in only 14 years? And that's a big part of it. Last uh, we had great guests this year. We had we invite guests from time to time, and our guest lecturer this year was Mary Wilson from the Supremes. The Supremes, wow! Who uh, came to talk about growing up in the projects in Detroit in the nineteen fifties, deciding to be a singer, and then becoming the most popular female uh, singing group uh, of history in all all time still, and how they dealt with their popularity, they dealt with fame, they dealt with segregation, um, separation, how they dealt with politics. Uh, all those things and, and her maturation through that process—it was great. She was wonderful. Are, are,
0: are you? Were you a friend of Mary Wilson? Are you? Are you a friend?
1: No. I, uh, well, I hope she sent me a really nice <laughs> note afterwards, and I, you know, i will say what what was true, Real, very, very true. So she's a little older um, than than I am, and so I would have been in grade school, middle school when the right. streams were kind of hitting their stride, and uh, I would have been in a small cohort of somewhere ten, twenty million people who had a crush on her. <laughs> uh, uh, so, you know, she was always my favorite of them. I, I just She was just um, uh, a wonderful part of the success of the group. And, uh, and then I'm on the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
0: That's right, absolutely. You and play guitar, correct? I,
1: I, I, I play with a guitar, or at a guitar, is <laughs> a fair, fair to say. But, uh, so I'm on that board and she had done some work with the board in honoring Smokey Robinson last year. And through that connection, I said, gosh, she's out there in the world doing these things, and you know, i had no contact with her. We called her up and said, "Gee, we have this thing we 're doing we 'd love for you to participate and- she found the time, and it was wonderful.
0: That's great. Well, wow. thank you very much. A long answer, but I
1: love. The no, questions. no, a awesome great story,
0: here. a great story. Well, let's get into the uh, into the news of the university, and first, let's get into the news of education uh, and its and topical. Um, the, uh, the the Democratic candidate for the president of the United States, Hillary Clinton, has uh, made one of the uh, planks in the platform for the Democrats of free education at free tuition, I should say, at at state universities. Why don't you handicap the possibilities for that? since you run the largest in the nation?
1: So I'd say, first, you know, platforms and policy both begin with the letter P. (laughs) But sometimes there's not much more relationship (laughs) to them than that. I mean, I think those are aspirational goals. And we we have three pillars that we talk about a lot. We talk about affordability, access, and excellence. And I'm all for affordability, all for access, and all for excellence. And to the extent that we can work with our leaders to help This is really focusing on the affordability side. We would love to cooperate with um, anyone who's there to help us on the affordability side. We would want to make sure that we do that while maintaining or expanding actually access, but really elevating excellence. We have the finest higher education system in the world. We have um, for this last century, and it's made all the difference, I think, in the quality of life in the United States and the position of the United States in the world. Different discussion, but I think who we are and our relevance to the world, uh, depends on great ideas that have come in many cases from our universities over the last century. So we want to make sure to preserve and continue to um, uh, support that competitive advantage that we have with the world, the best and smartest people and ideas. So in working with government and others to help make education more affordable and more accessible, particularly for low and middle income families, I think that's a great thing. One. Two, these are complicated, nuanced, connected things. It's not a a finger snap and it all uh, occurs, so we have to look at the details. But I think that the know. public
0: probably, th- at least some members of the public think that. And clearly, I mean, it's, it's been an issue because it, it powered, you know, powered Bernie Sanders' campaign, yes. one of those one of those elements. Uh, do, you, do, you, do you talk with other university presidents on state level about this kind, this issue of affordability, and what's the conversation like?
1: We do have the conversation, and we do, th- we, we, uh, this is, uh, we think about it, and we think about things that we can do. My colleagues and I particularly think about things we can do to help education be more affordable. We, I worry about student debt as a problem for the nation. And so the things, when I think about we're, what we're doing at Ohio State, reducing student debt is a big priority for us in many ways. So, you know, we've, we've done some things locally. We've uh, started a, uh, affordability grants last year. We worked on squeezing administrative costs down, which we did. And then we took that money and put it directly into students' pockets and need-based aid. So it was $15 million distributed to 12,000 students last year. This year, not not 15 million each, (laughs) uh, but 15 million distributed to 12,000 students last year. This year, uh, we're able to raise that to $20 million uh, distributed to 15,700. So a few few over 12,000 students here in Columbus, but also more than 3,000 students on our regional campuses. All to try to decrease the, uh, to try to make college more affordable. So we think that's important. We have assistance from the state government in a variety of ways, two ways primarily. One is the state share of instruction, or SSI, that supports the quality of our enterprise, it allows us to hire faculty and maintain, do all the things that make us a great university. So we need to have funding to be a great university. And then there's the Ohio College Opportunity Grants, or OCOG, which is support for low-income students. And those things help us with excellence on the SSI side and affordability on the OCOG side. As we move, if we, if to the extent there were more funding available for OCOG, the gap in cost for middle-income families could continue to decrease. There are states where that is um, zero for tuition now. Uh, where a combination of Pell Grants from the federal government, uh, state aid to medium medium and low income families, and institutional aid together uh, exceed the cost of tuition. And so that's something that is done and has been done for years in many states uh, already today and so it's a combination of federal government, state policy, university policy to try and narrow that gap and we'd love to work with people to make that be the case. We, we couldn't, there are ways you could do it that would End up in there being uh, zero tuition that would uh, destroy or damage the quality of the university. So we wouldn't want to do that. But if we could work cooperatively with people to make this better, we we would. Bottom line is there's no free lunch. I mean, these these are compromises and and policy does that we have to work on together. But we're happy to work in that space. The the
0: the the, the question of affordability. I mean, you you hear it now. It's a contemporary issue. But did you hear it when you were at at Cal Irvine?
1: Yes. So um, yes. Uh, <clears throat> loudly actually and um uh, uh very loudly in especially in that state i' uh, so there you know there's a lot of activism about it and so you know not to com- uh, compare apples and oranges or my uh former uh spouse was current you know i only have one wife I married my trophy <laughs> wife first and a
0: congratulations <laughs> um, <laughs> you said the right thing
1: but um uh there Uh, The state contributions to aid for moderate income families, moderate and low income families, the contributions of the university and Pell grants mean that uh, people in the lower half of the income distribution have at least their full tuition covered. And so that was an important policy for us. And it turned out that two things were true with that being the case that, that I noticed. One, we had an extraordinarily high percentage of first-generation students, which I think is a good thing. I think going to college is a good thing. And I think it's particularly meaningful and wonderful if you take someone who's from a family where no one has gone to college and that person goes because there tends to be a cascading effect in the generations after that Then more and more people are educated, are participating actively in the workforce and all those things. So that first person tends to kind of show opportunity that then cousins and children and grandchildren follow so we think every first is a really that's a particularly nice thing for us so we we like that and um, and then students were graduating with less debt um, as an average there than they were in some other parts of the country and so i believe that affordability can be a policy and it can make a difference and it can help us to be more effective
0: Okay. Just before I turn it over, to Tom. Just curious, your folks were were they were did they have degrees, college degrees?
1: Yes. So my uh, parents both went to college in the nineteen thirties. So really unusual. Uh, my father was a went on a uh, was a football player, and he went to college to play football. And I say that I use my words precisely. He wasn't interested in going to college. He wanted to play football, and uh, he was an outstanding football player. I would say a national champion. I have his national championship. Trophy Where was this at Morgan State College okay. in Baltimore and. I have his national championship trophy hanging on my wall uh, uh, today, and he was team captain and would have been a professional football player if there were a time to if, in what? the 1930s if there were such a thing. So he was really a football player, but that got him to college. And then honestly there he met my mother who was from Youngstown um, and uh, worked to save money to be able to get a bus ticket to go and then find a job to put herself through college. Her family had no money whatsoever, so she was extraordinarily unusual to be... African-American woman in 1933 going off to college, but they met, and then she really helped him. Her aspirations for his future helped him to go on to medical school after college and do other things which I think were not part of his mindset when he went. And one of the great things that happens at college is that people meet other people who stimulate and inspire them. And so they had, uh, um, so, so they were able to do that. And I'll be, something I don't, I've not really said quite like this before, but I wouldn't. I can't imagine myself being in the position I am, had that not been the case for them. I mean, it takes a long time to go through these various steps, and so I had educated parents that gave me a start enough <clears throat> to at least aspire to higher education in ways that, you know, allowed this all to be possible. And I
2: think that's. So I've seen it be a great thing, and I'm a fan of college.
0: Well, but, interesting story. Sorry. yeah.
2: Yep. So classes start next week, yes. uh, and with it, the sophomore dorm role. Sophomores have to live in dorms, or most sophomores do. Yes. How do you envision that um, changing campus and the off-campus with housing? Two or, or three things. We that we,
1: yeah. Well, so there are two or three things we like about students living on campus. I first lived on campus when I was in college, and it was great to be a part of the campus community. And uh, my two sons who went to college both lived on campus their four years, and Actually, they one lived, uh, one was a, a, an athlete, so his fifth year he lived off campus, but lived on campus for, for the time before that and liked that. And so I, I find the campus community be a great place to be. So we like the idea of having more students live on campus for that experience. We also like the broadly stated environmental uh, impact of it. There's less commuting, less travel time, less uh, parking, less driving, all kinds of things that are good for the students in their own time management, and we think that's a good thing. There are data that show that students who live on campus or are closer to campus are more engaged with campus activities. They stay in school, there's a higher persistence rate, a higher graduation rate, and so there are lots of things that correlate with students living closer and and being on campus. We also have the opportunity to have seminars and other things in the evening quite uh, conveniently because all of the the new housing that we built on the, the north side of campus, there are seminar rooms and other things so the professors can come get together with groups of students and uh, have classes on a variety of topics uh, right there and very conveniently so we want to expand the kinda of co-curricular part of the <coughs> experience as well uh, so, and then the students really love the experience the, the food service and the way that they live together the, all those things are things that we get really good feedback on so so this is the first year that Almost all sophomores will be living on campus. We we learn by doing all the time, but we're very excited about it. Do
0: you, do you foresee that you would like students to stay on campus in even higher grades, juniors?
1: We have juniors and seniors already, but as a as
0: a requirement. Oh, you know, I or, or I, is, there, I... is there a line that you sort of see as an educator where you need to sort of. Tell them you need to learn now, live independently while still maintaining your responsibilities at school. If you can do that, having gone to school, I know that's hard.
1: We, we, you know, we, um, uh, everyone has a different kind of rate of finding that to be the best option. My goal would be that we had campus housing available for everyone who wanted it, or as many who wanted it as possible, and and for those for whom that wasn't the best deal, they could find the best place for them to live. I don't want to be overly prescriptive in any way. Uh, uh, So I think first year, it's it's, whatever possible, I think it's really important, uh, if we can, to have students really take the step to living away from whatever and being on campus and in the environment. And then we've done that for first and second year to kind of make this a viable option. I would, uh, as there's demand, I would uh, see us um, uh, growing more perhaps, but I would let that be a little flexible and really have the students be the ones to help us decide that.
2: So when I was in school, uh, sophomore year, I moved off campus and and I liked it. You're you're independent to what Dominic said. Um, Is there something to that that you're forcing people now to, to live on campus where maybe they want to live with their buddies in a house off campus? Well, we would like them
1: to live with their buddies on campus, you know, it's one one thing. And two of the uh, – um, you're not all that old. Um, uh, <clears throat> how about you're getting there? I do remember that. Uh, but, uh, this
0: is radio, but he's looking at it, so we'll tell him.
1: You know, the, um, uh, the living on campus is much more apartment-like now than it was certainly in my day. So there right. are uh, kitchens, and you pick your roommate and whatever, so it's – kind of a hybrid between what living independently would have been the, you know when I was in in college um, there's time. you go down and there's the meal was served between six ten and six fourteen. probably is about the time we had to eat it and 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 now that we have meals from 7 or so in the morning until I think 11 or midnight and so it's 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 kind of a hybrid between living independently and living in the cloistered campus community the thing that we see that the reason that we my predecessors actually led to us moving in this direction were uh, better outcomes for students living closer to campus and so we wanted to we're very interested in improving our graduation rates and part of affordability is time to degree so we wanted to help the time to degree and the data showed the graduation rates were higher time to degree was shorter uh... things were better for students living closer in so this is really to help more students be more successful, uh, ultimately, and but but again, we we want to be student-centric. So this is really something that we want to balance for the overall quality of the student experience, and we'll learn uh, from this as we go forward. Are, are
0: Are you satisfied with the change that's made on the neighborhoods? I mean, as a result of more students going on campus, and we've done stories and have walked the neighborhoods down there, that it's, it has changed the dynamic of off-campus housing, the business and economics of it. Uh, and a number of people have gone out of the business just did, didn't see that it was um, sustainable in the way that it used to be. Um, but clearly they felt that the university wanted to have greater influence on its neighborhood.
1: I would say a personal opinion. Here. Yes. Uh, this is a personal opinion. I would want us to have a greater influence on our neighborhood, and what we would and and I would say that, uh, you said the the uh, prior business model wasn't maybe as effective in the uh, current day. That wouldn't bother me either. That we had to that the business model might have to change. I don't, I can't see this not being a, that there not being a successful business model available though, uh, because uh, proximity to the campus is incredibly valuable, and if we find that there's Forgive me, but a little more competition with quality and, and uh, price right. close to campus. Uh, I would, As a student advocate, I wouldn't see that as a bad thing. And I believe truly that it can be done in ways that are uh, quite, where people can be very successful.
0: How, how big is the neighborhood? What do you see as the neighborhood around the university?
1: Just well, there are two, two kinds of neighborhoods. One would be the walking distance neighborhood, and that would be some number of blocks up to, I don't know, I, there's probably some real data here, so I'm it's speculating, okay. but but you know, there's, there's a walkable neighborhood, half a mile, three, four blocks is one kind of a neighborhood. You know, uh, Five, 10-minute walk is one thing. 15, 20-minute walk kind of gets toward the edge of that, and so there'd be probably different zones, and I'm sure somebody knows this better than I, but just in thinking for myself, uh, and particularly in the winters, you know, when it's uh, uh, cold, there's a certain how far do you want to walk in that, and so I'm going to... Imagine that we see a fall off in prices as we start to move further away, uh, but I would say that certainly in the, the uh, uh, three four five blocks, I think is a very uh, student intense neighborhood for okay. us, particularly in certain directions.
0: But the university, because uh, the university has now influence in Wyman Park, you're trying to get some professor, at least people, administrators, right. folks yeah. from the yeah. from the campus, to start to. Gentrify? I guess is that the right word for that? Yeah, or I don't,
1: you know, the, the word gentrify has kind of connotations. That's why that I you know, asked whether I wouldn't it's... Like. I would say that we want there to be, that, that people there to be able to take, be proud of and sustain and elevate the quality of life in their neighborhood. Some of that would, are people who, some of those are people who are moving into the neighborhood. And what I noticed on my tours through there is that there are people moving into the neighborhood um, in two phases who might not have moved into the neighborhood a decade or more ago. Uh, significant, or some of them at least, are moving in at market prices, which is great. That really helps. And then others who are uh, associated with the university or other businesses who wouldn't have seen this as a, uh, a viable place to live when the neighborhood was under more stress a, a decade or more ago right. are finding it to be quite a great, great place. What we don't want to, I mean, the, the goal absolutely would, and again, personal opinion, wouldn't be to replace people. But to have um, to support people in having pride in the neighborhood and elevate the quality of life there, and you've you've seen some of the uh, transformation.
2: there. It's been really tremendous, and I I'd love to see that spread uh, broadly Got across it. Columbus. Got it. So as students move in this weekend, right, they're going to see yes. torn down buildings <clears throat> along High that uh, related to Edwards building their apartment along 15th yes. and High, across the street in the western edge. Ohio State wants to to redevelop that as well, where the Wexner Center is. Yes. Um, how different, once this class of 2020 sets foot on campus, how, how much of a different experience will High Street be for those kids when they graduate in four or five years?
1: One of the things I hope with High Street, and really particularly the area around 15th and High, is that it works more as a door to the university than it does uh, currently. Just the orientation of Mershon and a few others there, particularly Mershon, is, is, it's almost like its uh, shoulder is turned to High Street. And so you can kind of drive by, and there's this big monolithic building. It's not a really opening, open, welcoming presence. And so I'd like that that area to be more of a welcoming presence on a plaza so that there's a, a softer interface between what's the university and what's the community and that people can uh, have interest that bridge the two. You know, if you think about it, when you open that area up, you're looking then straight down the oval toward the library. and But that view now is really obscured by some of the architectural Uh, uh, features that we have and we think we can make it more open so that there's really kind of a front door to the University there and and that that area of High Street that commercialized area of High Street has uh, some University function some commercial function kind of things that will draw people to that district uh, for uh, uh, art and uh, uh, perhaps a theater and other things of that nature so I think we can uh, be better neighbors better because the university's maybe.
0: interest right now is, is trying to get people from distant places to interact more with, with, with the campus, with what the campus has to offer. Yes.
1: I'd say distant places and also nearby, you know, just near Columbus, I mean near, nearby places. We uh, uh, are a public university. We want to uh, continually do what we can to elevate the quality of life.
0: Got it. Got it. Um, over the past couple weeks, uh, Columbus has uh, received the, the Smart City Transportation Grant. A, um, we use the,
1: the word won, but okay, I'll say receive, but <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> um Correct, they won it. $50 million, That's a, that also includes a, a $10 million uh, private contribution, yeah. um, and the university will have a role in it, if you can explain for us at least the depth of that role, at least where it starts, and also what you hope the university might get out of its participation in Smart City.
1: Well, first, we're very proud, uh, thrilled at this incredible competition that the uh, the city won. Uh, 78, I think it was, 78 uh, competitors overall, 77 plus Columbus uh, competing. Uh, Seven finalists, and the finalists, if I can remember, were uh, Denver, Kansas City, Pittsburgh, Portland, Austin, Texas, San Francisco. Correct. Uh, And so a great series of uh, really progressive, outstanding cities. And so to be able to come at the end and win that competition, I think, was a real reflection of the dedication and focus here that we have here in Columbus and how well the business community, the city government, and the university work together. And so we were very proud of that. What we see, our role, you were a question.
0: No, what was the university's role then? In, in, so our,
1: our role, we have, um, so first we're a factory for ideas and knowledge, and so that's a part of what we've been doing. We, we have a Center for Automotive Research correct, we've had for right. many, many years, and so we've been thinking about that. We've worked on eco the car and other uh, uh, modern uh, modes of transportation. The Buckeye Bullet uh, is an, another thing that we've been working on. So we've been interested and fascinated with sort of 21st century transportation and vehicles. We think we can have even do even more in this uh, realm to help with the city. We're also interested in city planning and traffic patterns and all of those kinds of things and m- making the space a usable space. So. We have lots of people who are from the urban planning and policy side, from the engineering and technology side, from the uh, ecology and sustainability side of the ledger people who are interested in these discussions. And so uh, we're thrilled to be a part of this. Uh,
0: Do you see it as, and should the city look at it as an academic exercise, or do you think there is something practical that can come out of this?
1: I think of it as something very, very practical. I think that we would look at doing things in different ways in the future. And you know what? Maybe to me it's a little bit like academic medicine, which was my career, where we were treating patients, but we treated them in an academic setting, meaning we gathered data and tried to learn things from what we were doing that would help us do it it differently and better tomorrow. And so so part of what we did in academic medicine was in classrooms and labs, but a lot of it was in hospitals and clinics. And the hospitals and clinics here are the streets and and highways around uh, uh, central Ohio. And so we'll have theoretical laboratory things, testing things, but also practical things that affect your life and mine, hopefully, in a positive way.
0: And so does the university get involved at all in terms of recruiting other support or other businesses for this? Or is, this, is it something that is kind of insulated to a, or I should say contained to a, a, a small group of major players that have a lot to offer, like the school or like Battelle?
1: Yeah, you know, I think we're just starting. Did you, did you see some of that? I, I so we're just starting. Here, and what I envision and what I hope is that if we were sitting around now, uh, as uh, uh, four people thinking about uh, the smart cities, and that one of us was from the university, one was from Battelle, another was from uh, the city, and someone else was from a construction firm that in our conversation, you wouldn't be able to tell who was from which point of view that we'd all be working together as partners and all contributing. And I see this happening in small and large ways. Okay. I'm excited about it.
2: So later this year, the university is going to be delving deeper into its plan to uh, farm out energy management. Uh, before you were here, they did campus park for parking. Yes. I'm curious how um, how you decide on what gets privatized or could get privatized and what, could be next. So great words, uh, farm
1: out and privatized. That were two words (laughs) I heard in in that. So so let me say what I'm thinking of with energy, what we would be looking for. We uh, use lots of energy. And we are not uh, uh, acceptably efficient in the way that we use energy, uh, period. We have things like buildings that don't have uh, uh, meters on them. Um, I walk in different buildings where it's hot in one room and cold in the next room winter or summer. And so I I could just experience that as a person living on the campus that we're just uh, not in the 21st century for the way that we the, the energy efficiency of our enterprise and the way that we manage the way that we manage energy. So what we're looking for really is a partner who's better at that than we are to help us to do a better job. As we do that, if we can learn again like with uh, smart cities if we can learn to be even better, if we can push the envelope on sustainability and quality reliable uh, energy on decreasing our carbon footprint. We have a pledge to decrease our carbon footprint. So if we, we will want to do that in a way that allows us to continue to move forward. So to get better, so to be state of the art today, but to make the state of the art even better in the future. And uh, so we're looking for partners who can bring that to us and help us be able to do that. So that will be a requirement for any of the partnerships that we look to establish. Uh, since this is something that can be also run more efficiently from an economic standpoint, in addition to the sustainability parts, that that alone would be a reason for us looking to have a partnership. If we can also do that more economically, that's great for us because we can s- save resources that we're now spending by not being efficient in energy and use those resources to invest in our students and faculty and staff and I think that's a real opportunity for us. I will say, just so I can a little asterisk and not to talk again about prior life, but my last campus we had a real focus in this and we ended up being, um, for my last year there, ranked first in the country in sustainability. That was great. We moved from not being uh, ranked to the top ten and then stayed three years in the top ten and made it to number one. And we did the sustainability in a sustainable enough fashion that my last year there, we were number one, and then the year after that, we were number one again. So we really made changes in the structure of the campus and the way we were using energy. So we were spending much less money, millions of dollars less actually, uh, over that time, and using much less energy, well ahead of our goals for carbon neutrality. So I, I th- it was, so it's a great thing to do to work to decide to want to be sustainable, and to find that you could be sustainable and more economical at the same time, and that's what our what our goal
0: is. So. How far How far does – what other possibilities are out there besides after energy? So Things that you're looking at right now. Yeah, so truly I haven't
1: I'm, – I'm looking first at energy. Um, you know, that's something <laughs> but, we're going to look at this fall. And I haven't thought uh, about the next things that are coming up. Um, uh, nothing per se. It's not like we say, oh, gosh, let's line up things. It, this is really just a very, very important thing for us to do, for us to be able to – um, sustain ourselves and to be leaders in this that I think is important for us to do. and So we'll do that. And then if there are other opportunities that come up, we would look at them. But we'd also evaluate them. This is talked about a lot on the economic basis, and I appreciate and understand that. We'd want it to be an economically viable thing, but it's something that we need to do a period because we're just not uh,
2: modern in the, the way that we manage our energy today. Got it. Got it. Well, is there any concern with parking and this, Ohio State's among the first universities doing this? Because you're first, it's easier. You could screw it up because there's no precedent.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, one of the great things about being an innovator is that you do have to find and create your way at the same time. And so we could wait for others to show us that this is this, the the way forward. Or, but we uh, would prefer to be exemplars. And uh, my uh, background, I mentioned the circumstances in the past where I had a similar thought with my colleagues, and we end up being the nation's leaders in this. And that's, that's the outcome that we seek. And we have the intelligence, and the innovation, and the entrepreneurial spirit, and the ability here to do the same thing. And a terrific thing about Ohio State, one of, honestly, one of the things that drew Brenda and me here was the ability to do things in a better and better way, in a way that makes a difference to more and more people because of who we are. People care about what happens at Ohio State. We're relevant to people. You know, when you told people when you were a student that you were a student at Ohio State, they didn't say, oh, where was that, or ho-hum. They're, they're always excited about it because we're a relevant and important institution. And as we can do things that work really well, we like contributing that to the, the, the broader discussion to try to help uh, elevate the quality of, uh, you know, of the higher education enterprise broadly. Uh, and I'm thinking. Let me say that there's the parking, and you mentioned parking and energy. So parking was the past, and I wasn't here when that was done. And there were different considerations, and so I, I'm really focused. Now you on You inherited that, absolutely. I just, just I'm really looking more at what we're doing, and not thinking of them. There's similarities, but I think that there'll be differences as well. One of the
0: things you're doing is the Institute for Teaching and Learning. Yes. What is that?
1: Great. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> uh, and, uh, so Institute for Teaching and Learning I just came from the launch of that today, August 2016 right, we're timely, okay and um, I'm sort of mentioning my background a lot so I'll That's go up, fine. back to it again and this say is... that I'm a medical doctor and I've seen transformations in medical practice over the last 20 30 years from we all always were wanting to do the best we could. We did amazing things. American medicine led the world in many, many ways. Terrific. Over the last twenty years or so from the bit mid nineties, computers and all allowed us to gather data and not just have me do a great job with my patient on what was on what her condition happened to be but actually look and see how my job with my patient compared with your job and your patient or all of our jobs with all of our patients or patients broadly to get an idea of how well things could be done. What, what, Not did you do a good job, but what, what's the optimal um, outcome that you could get? And we started looking more not at having a good experience with patients only, and again, not saying that wasn't wonderful, but looking at uh, the... Uh, a benchmark for uh, a great patient outcome as being something that we all wanted to work on and then sharing data with each other to try to say gee what things have you done to help your patient outcomes be better what things might I right. do etc That was a little bit of a preamble teaching I think has the same opportunity but we tend not to do it we've all had great teachers we've all had teachers that weren't so good but as a teacher myself I, and I, I say this not to be proud but to Categorized. So i won teaching awards, but I never really compared my teaching outcomes with anyone else's. I, I would get a prize, which I thought, well, that's nice, but is, was that better or worse? Could it have been better or worse? So the Teaching and Learning Institute is meant to use some of the things that we've learned from med- clinical medicine nationally to allow us to gather data, to look at outcomes as being the, the goal, and to try to share information with each other on ways that we can improve outcomes broadly. A lot of research on this, the real challenge is moving us from the theoretical research to the actual practical, um, uh, uh, to really having this happen on a daily basis um, across the university. And the Teaching and Learning Institute is meant to try to, starting with a smaller group of faculty see things that we can do to try to improve the quality of our teaching and then ways we can disseminate that across.
0: I was going to say, this institute sort of denotes that you've got this entity that uh, will be working on this and yes. so that it becomes, I don't know, is, is pilot the right word to sort yes. of develop that and then try to incorporate it, you're saying, into basically university practice, yes. best practices to. R-
1: yeah, really, impo- so let me just, a uh, couple things that are really important. First, we know that there are better and, and not as successful ways of doing teaching. And that when you do that, use the better ways of doing teaching, more students get the outcome you wish than when you don't do it. So that we know. How can we make it that that's what happens all the time? That that's easier, more fun, more engaging, more inspiring for our faculty, and more successful for our students as a, a, a way of doing things? Uber. Works. How many hands raised? Who uses Uber? I've used it. Okay. So I, I right. So the young. By the way, this was an age test. If, you, if you're on the radio, <laughs> but you uh, found that the closer you were, the more millennial you were, the more Uberized you, you were. What we found with Uber was uh, my using it is that it's um, easier, more reliable, uh, cleaner, faster, uh, less expensive. So gosh, pretty. Uh, uh, what everything not you look for. That? And, and I think that's why it's worked so well. We were in, in overseas. We we're in France last uh, earlier this summer, and you know, if you got in a taxi, if I got in a taxi cab in France, I had no idea where I was going. We could be driving in circles, and, we, and the guy says, "Okay, it's twenty dollars," and I'm like a hundred yards from where you're on know, the other side of the block from where we started. With Uber, you can actually hop in, look on your phone, see where you're going, and have. And I mean, it's an entirely better experience for so many ways. So. Back to your question, for teaching and learning, we would like to sort of find ways to make teaching and learning in a more effective way more enjoyable for the faculty, easier for the faculty, give the faculty more support in doing that. And if, if we can't do that, if it's harder or it takes extra time or competes with other things, faculty are doing research and other things like that, then then uh, we're, we're not going to make much progress. So part of this is to look at best practices and then really make them a practical improvement over current practice so that the end user finds it really kind of down slightly you're riding your bike slightly downhill with the wind of your back to do it in this way versus level or uphill with the wind in your face to do it in the way you were doing things in the past and and that let me say the magic is if we can do that then i think we can have transformational change really transformational change if we can't then we're not going to succeed so we're taking on a big a big task got it excited
0: There you go. Our thanks to Dr. Michael Drake for his thoughts, and our thanks to you, of course, for spending time with us. If you want to hear any of our earlier podcasts, you can find them on SoundCloud and iTunes. Just type the kicker or Columbus Business First into the search field to access them. And if you want to know what's going on every day in the Central Ohio business scene, we invite you to look us up online at ColumbusBusinessFirst.com. At our site, you'll find reports as news breaks, and you can sign up for our morning and afternoon news roundups, indispensable information tools if you're serious about business. Until next time, we appreciate your listening.